You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. to uh, our Bible reading, and it's a little bit of a long reading. I've printed it for you on the sheets, so if you don't have um, your Bible with you, it's, it's there on the sheet, so do pick, pick one of those up there um, at the back. And uh, just before I come to the Bible reading, I want to sort of introduce the passage, uh, and then we'll have the reading, um, and then to balance things out, I'll have a, a slightly shorter sermon, so we, we should, uh, all things should even up uh, in the end. So we've been considering um, oh, the genealogy, we considered that this morning um, from the book of Matthew. And in the evening we're particularly going to look at some of the uh, women from the genealogy that Matthew mentions. So uh, Tamar this week, and uh, next week Rahab, and then considering Ruth. And I'm thinking Mary is probably going to be covered by the morning, morning services, so I'm not doing a, a sermon on Mary or at least that's not planned, unless there's great popular demand, I suppose I could do. Um, but so we're, we're following these, these women who are the ancestors of the Messiah, the ancestors of Jesus Christ. As we saw this morning, there's this line of the Messiah which comes through Judah and Tamar, Tamar Salmon and Rahab and Boaz and Ruth, our ancestors in the faith. So tonight we come to, to Judah and Tamar. So we're here in Genesis, the book of Genesis, and in chapter 38, this part of the, the Genesis narrative which deals with uh, Jacob and his sons. Most of this part of Genesis deals with the, the story of Joseph at great length. We have the Joseph narrative, and then embedded sort of in the middle of the, the Joseph narrative, or towards the beginning of the Joseph bit, is the bit with Judah and Tamar. Uh, and this is the bit which probably didn't make it into your children's Bible, kids. Uh, Tensor, Joseph's a great favorite one, isn't it, for the kids' Bibles? Judah and Tamar, less so. Uh, but one of the major themes of the book of Genesis is this uh, theme of the promised seed, the promised offspring. God made a, a promise to Mary that it would be uh, one of her offspring who would... Uh, crush the head of the serpent, who would deal with evil. That promise made uh, to the woman, that mother promise, as it were, of the whole Bible. And the book of Genesis traces that through, that godly line and the promised seed. If you think back to our studies in Genesis, we've had the, that line, the Sethite line, going all the way through. Uh, and that's always then threatened, but God preserving this godly line and preserving this line. And that comes up all the way through through the Abrahamic narratives and down through the book of Genesis. So there's this great promise, promised seed and a promised inheritance, a promised land. And yet this promise is always under threat. There's these great threats. So we're always thinking, how on earth is this promise going to come about? We have uh, promises made to Abraham and yet his wife uh, is barren. She cannot have children. And you think, well, how on earth is this promised son going to be born? And the promised land, but they, they come into the land and it's full of uh, enemies in the land. And so all the way through, there's the promise of God, 
and yet they're surrounded by all these threats and all the things which make you think, how on earth is the promise of God going to be fulfilled? And that's much like life today, isn't it? That's much like what it is to be the church today. God has given us wonderful promises that he's going to uh, disciple the nation. We're called to disciple the nations through Jesus Christ and that the nations will stream to the Messiah. These great, wonderful promises. And we look around us and think, how on earth are all these promises going to be fulfilled? And yet when we look back in the scriptures, we see God continuing to fulfill his promises. And we see that in this passage, Genesis 38, in the midst of the mess of human sin and these obstacles to the promises, which uh, here it's the, the unrighteousness of Judah is the major obstacle. In the midst even of these great obstacles, even the sin of his people, God is faithful and works out his promises. So that is, that is what we see as we go through. So let me now come with that introduction to uh, the reading of uh, God's word. And it breaks into the three paragraphs I split it up into. So we're going to look um, at 1 to 11 at, at Rahab's problem or Rahab's dilemma. And then 12 to 19, we'll see um, Rahab's deception and Judah's sin, this central scene, this central act. And then 20 to 30, we'll see uh, God's blessing, the, the aftermath, um, as that all plays out. So hear now the word of God. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw uh, the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what, he, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, 
let me come into you. For he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim by the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I haven't found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we should be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you, didn't fi- you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as she drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, Afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So God is at work to fulfill and to keep his covenant promises, and yet he works out his purposes uh, through the midst of messy and untidy situations. And I think that is why uh, these accounts of some of these women are actually there uh, in the scripture, so that when we come to Mary and Joseph, that was, a, that was an untidy situation. And many people would have just written Mary off and written the whole situation off. And yet, as Matthew writes this account, at least when people then, the Jews came to hear the gospel, they might think, well, we remember Tamar, we remember um, Rahab, we remember Ruth. Now, Mary, this, perhaps this is a, it's not, a, it's not the same situation, but perhaps the Lord might be at work in this untidy and and messy situation as well. So I think that's why we have these uh, women in the the genealogy, although I'm hoping as we study them more that we might might see more connections between uh, between these women. But we come first off to these first 11 verses, which is really Tamar's dilemma to the setup uh, and to see uh, what really drove her to the course of action that she took, which I think you'll agree, it's pretty, a pretty drastic course of action. And the account starts there. Uh, it's just uh, the previous chapters just had Joseph um, sent into slavery. And we've had that, that account where 
um, Judah and his brothers, we see that their unrighteousness, they have uh, sold him as a slave. And remember that they took uh, the coat of uh, Joseph and it was ripped and it was put in the, in the, the blood of, of, of a goat and they sent it before um, Jacob. And um, they, they say, look, please identify this. Whose is this? And they're saying, well, uh, yeah, he, Jacob says that it's Joseph's. And so we've had this, their unrighteousness, their deception, uh, and Judah's uh, deception and, and sin there in chapter 37. And then about that time, he goes down and turns to this uh, Adulamite. And then uh, verse 2 sees this daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Um, and we don't find out her name. We're, we're not given his wife's name throughout the passage. We just know, we know her father's name, uh, the daughter of Shua. That's all we know. But we do know she's a Canaanite. And if you've been reading uh, the book of Genesis, the, the alarm bells are meant to ring at this point because it was uh, Canaan who was uh, one of the ones under, under the curse of God. If you think back to the account of Noah, it was, he was a son of Ham, and Canaan was under this curse. And also, um, he's one of the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the, the Hivites and all the Ites and the Moabites, who were those who were under, under God's judgment. And God had already said to Abraham that he's going to be away for 400 years or his family, then they'll come back in for the sin of the, the Amorites and the sin of these, these people has not reached its full limit. So the, the Canaanites are under God's, under God's curse and they've been told about that. And so Abraham is absolutely emphatic earlier that his son Isaac is not to marry a, a, a Canaanite. He said, swear to me that you won't take to his servant, that you won't take a wife from the daughter of the Canaanites. And then Isaac similarly calls Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And so Judah presumably knew all this. He knew these promises. He knew the, the, the family history and the promises of God, and yet he's, he's turning aside to all of this. He's setting aside the promise of God and turning aside to, uh, to marry uh, this Canaanite woman, someone far outside of God's covenant people. And so um, I suppose in, in modern terms, it would be someone, from a, someone who's a, a, a Christian, who's been raised as a Christian, has faith in Christ, and then they wander away and marry someone who is as not a believer and is far from the, far from the church. Um, so, I mean, I think Canaanites were particularly hard cases. So Joseph marries an Egyptian, and so I think there's, this is particularly bad because they are the, the Canaanites are in the land and they're actually under, under God's curse. Um, and so it seems to be a, a particularly bad case here. And then we see that Judah he he marries her. And then we see uh, just disastrous sort of consequences then flowing out from that decision. We see how, how does it go with his sons? Well, not very well, we have to say. Um, and so here we see God's covenant promises are under threat. That's the real thing. Think about the, the, the storyline in Genesis. God, the promised seed. Uh, we've had all this great trouble in, in Isaac being finally born and this promised son and Judah is, is, is well, he's just throwing that all aside because he's met this um, beautiful, this pretty Canaanite woman. Um, and so um, he takes, uh, then has uh, three sons by uh, this, uh, the daughter of Shua, Ur, 
Onan, and Shelah. Judah then takes Tamar as a wife for his firstborn son. And we're not actually told where, much about Tamar at this point. We're not told uh, whether she's a Canaanite, she may have been, or whether she was an Israelite. There's nothing in the text really to determine that for us. So the, the sort of ancient tradition, the Talmud um, would say, well, she's an Israelite, but there's nothing really in, in Genesis to, to indicate one way or another. Uh, and yet she does seem a little bit like, like Ruth really wanted to be a part of God's covenant community. Uh, she seems more of a, like, she seems to be, uh, well, she's more righteous than Judah. And part of that is that she's actually uh, more concerned for this being part of the covenant community and these promises than, uh, than Judah himself was. So she, she may not be a, an Israelite, although she, she may be. We're not, we're not quite sure, but she acts more righteously than Judah. So Ur is so wicked. We're not told uh, much about Ur. We're told he's so wicked that the Lord puts him to death. And uh, the name, his name, Ur, is a, a play on the word of um, Hebrew, uh, in Hebrew for evil. So the, the word for evil is uh, resh alak, so it's uh, ra, and, and this is Ur. So it's just the two letters which get swapped around. And so if you think of the word, it'd be like, if uh, uh, an anagram of evil would be vile, it'd be like calling your son vile, which would, you know, it's not, not a great name for a son, but it's that, that sort of play on words, er and evil sort of go together. So he, the Lord puts him to death, and then Judah calls Onan to do the duty of a, of a brother-in-law, which according to the custom of the time and according to Mosaic law was to raise up an offspring for his brother. So this is a Leverite marriage. He wouldn't be forced into it, but this was a, a duty of um, the next brother. So the idea here is that your, uh, your brother dies, leaving a, a widow childless. The, the next brother would have the duty of actually, actually marrying her. It wasn't just sort of impregnating her. It was actually marrying her, taking her into a home, um, and providing an heir for his dead brother and for... Uh, and then the a continuation of the, the property would then continue within that, the, the brother's family and would, would continue down, would be handed down, and thereby also provide for the widow herself, that she would be provided, that she might have sons uh, to, to care for her. And so Judah calls Onan to this duty of, of a brother-in-law, but Judah's son Onan is also wicked, and does not provide a son for Tamar. And that is the, that is the sin of Onan here, that he, he fails to provide a, a son for Tamar. So he's, he's very happy to, to use her for um, set his own sexual gratification, it would seem. He, he has sex with her plenty often enough, but he's refusing to actually uh, provide a son for, for Tamar. So he's... With that, he's, he's not providing for Tamar's inheritance, for her future. Um, so her future is bound up with this son, with this child, and with that inheritance. And with that, Onan is also wanting to keep his brother's inheritance, and if it's the firstborn brothers, he would have the double portion, to keep that double portion for himself. So that is his wickedness here. People you know, that go in different directions with this, the, the sin of Onan. But that is his wicked act. Um, and so the Lord puts him to death as well. And so here is the Lord is acting to protect uh, Tamar. 
So then Judah uh, sends Tamar really out of the household, out of sight. So verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. And then we find out later that Shelah, his son, grows up. And then in the end, he doesn't give Shelah to Tamar. But he sends her away at this point, back to her father's house. And then he says, for he feared that he, that, that is, that Sheila would also die like his brothers. Um, so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So do you see, so Ju- Judah thinks that Tamar is somehow jinxed or cursed. That there's this awful woman, um, Tamar, and two of my sons are dead, and I don't want the third son to be dead too. Okay, so she is sent away, really a cursed woman, this jinxed woman, back to her father's household. So do you see the cruelty of that? How Judah, he's, he's so blind to the fact, oh, maybe it's his own sons who have been wicked here. He doesn't see that. He doesn't see the evil in his own children. He dumps it all on her and sends her away, and it's like out of sight, out of mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. So she's kind of pledged to be married to Sheila, but then... He doesn't actually follow through on that. So Tamar's faced really horrendous injustice in these situations. And particularly if you think if she's, a, if she's an Israelite woman, and we don't know, but if she's, if she's an Israelite, she's a woman from the covenant community, and then Judah's given her this, these sons that have been raised in this kind of Canaanite-ish fashion. And she's just faced this horrendous injustice. Well, then we come to this central uh, scene to um, Tamar's deception. The years go by and Judah's wife dies and Tamar, she seizes her opportunity. She hears that uh, Judah is off to Timnah to shear the sheep. It's the right time of the month for her and a chance to get a son. So she veils her face um, and waits for him. Judah thinks she's a prostitute says, let me come into you. And we don't get, you sort of, Judah's character is emerging. It's not, not a particularly nice piece of work, is he? She says, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a kid. Okay, the, the joke sort of works in Hebrew as well. Can't, it's not, so the word, I mean, kid, that works. It does it, the, a young goat or a lamb was symbolic for a child. It's not the, ver- the, the joke doesn't work verbally in the same way, but uh, a, a kid or a young lamb or a young goat would stand for a child. So Judah's saying, yeah, I'll give, you a, I'll give you a kid. And she says, and here we see her, her shrewdness or her cunning. Um, it's a deal, okay, but you give me a pledge. And he says... Well, yeah, uh, what pledge? And she says, well, your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. And you think, well, w- w- what is this? Well, the signet was like a hollow uh, cylinder. I don't know quite how big, not, not sort of half the size of a rolling pin or something. Um, and it was connected by a cord to a, a, a staff. It wasn't sort of, it's not talking about the staff you walk with. It's connected to a pin. And what you do is you put the pin through the cylinder, and then when you're signing a document, you're, you're rolling out on wax your signature. So it's a little bit like you know, a signet ring, that, that sort of thing. So, so, so what he's basically handing over 
is his passport, his ID, his bank details, and his bank codes. The whole lot, you know, there you are. Um, and so you see that um, Judah's sin is not only he's not only being sinful, but he's being incredibly stupid, isn't he? Handing all this over to this unknown prostitute. Um, but there, he, you know, there we see he he was he was in the heat of passion. He hands it all over, and then we you see how the the situation turns out. Um, he sends uh, the um, young goat back, but lo and behold, she has vanished. And they send someone to, he sends a friend to, to find her and can't do that. Um, and so she doesn't get the, the kid, but she does get the kid and keeps his, I, keeps his ID. Well, verses 20 to 30, this is the aftermath where everything comes to a head and comes to the surface. Three months later, Judah is told that Tamar is pregnant, and by immorality, no less. And he says, let her be burned. And so um, someone else sins, and Judah, in high hypocrisy, wants her to exact not only the full force of the law, but more than the full force of the law. Um, and so um, the, the full force of the law against Adultery would have been um, stoning, so execution by stoning, because um, adultery was considered to be as serious as, as murder. So the destruction of a family seen as, as serious as the destruction of a human life. And it may be that, the, um, that, that this is a sort of a case of adultery. If she's still pledged to Sheila, that he's thinking that that is a, an adulterous sort of situation. Now, the, the bit with the burning, there is a, in the Levitical law, there is a, um, a provision for, well, it's, it's not execution by burning, it's not being burned alive, it's, it's those who have been executed uh, who are then, uh, are then burnt, the, the corpse would be then burned. And that was in the case of if a priest's daughter um, committed immorality. And I think the idea, I'm not quite sure, I think the idea there was that in, in some cases that the law of God is basically saying that the, uh, the people of God are not to be like the pagan priests. So in the pagan priests, the daughters might be given in temple prostitution and that sort of thing, but not in Israel. You are not to give your priests in immorality. So I think, I think there are some laws around there. So, so I think Judah, it, but he's applying this this law in this unrighteous manner, and it doesn't quite doesn't seem to, to fit the case. And interestingly, he's in, in what sense does Judah here have author? He sent Tamar back to her father's house, and yet he is still claiming this sort of authority here. So it's it's a little bit strange that that should happen, but he's calling her out to be executed. Um, and then she. Um, comes and says, um, please identify, verse 25, uh, whose are these? And he's given this, this cord and this, this, his, his ID and, his pul- and all these sorts of things, and I'm pregnant by the man who, to whom these belong. And there's, a, there's an echo here, I think. Remember the previous chapter, uh, they'd taken Joseph's cloak and said, please, please identify these. And, and um, 
Jacob had, had looked at these, and he's um, it's boots on the other other foot. He's confronted not with a lie, but he is now confronted with the truth and this his wickedness, which had been uh, suppressed, hidden away, uh, and cast off, is now confronting him. He's being confronted with his own immorality. It's being the Lord is using all these things and Tamar's shrewdness and cunningness, really to bring his own sin to the fore. And he's, um, lo and behold, drops any talk of uh, Tamar being burnt or of himself facing consequences, one might think. And then uh, he, he takes her and she, she gets these, um, these children. And we have the, these twins and God, God blesses her with uh, these um, two boys. So her inheritance is secured, her future is secured. And then um, God's purposes and God's promises are maintained as we find out that this Perez is then in the line of the Messiah and be the, the great, 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 great grandfather of, of King David. And so, um, and there, and again, in, in the, the birth of the children, we see God's sovereign choice, again, that the younger brother supplanting the older brother, as so often happens in the Genesis accounts. Well, so what do we learn from this? It's quite a story, isn't it? It's quite a story. Um, I think on the large scale, we just see here is an example of God's own covenant purposes being fulfilled in the face of human sin, human unrighteousness. That there's nothing that can stop God's purposes and plans being fulfilled, that he will bring them about. He will, uh, he's promised that the, the seed, the offspring of the woman will, uh, will defeat evil, will crush the, the head of the serpent. And those promises, we see them working out through the whole of the book of Genesis. And again and again, they look like they're completely under threat, and yet we see they're fulfilled. And all the way through the scriptures, it's a tale of cliffhangers, isn't it? It's a tale of you left thinking, how is this ever going to work out? And yet we see finally God sending his Messiah. And so as we look back at this great long history of God's covenant purposes being working out and culminating in the gift of, of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas, how much confidence do we have looking forwards that God's covenant purposes, which continue, will continue to be fulfilled and unfurled through the mess of human history, through the mess of the sins of the church, through the complete chaos, through the untidiness that God's sovereign purposes will continue to be worked out uh, until Christ returns. So we, we look back, we see God's purposes being fulfilled throughout history. It gives us great confidence as we look forwards and in our present moment that right now God's sovereign purposes for his covenant people are being worked out. It's not what we necessarily read on the nightly news, is it? But we know that God's purposes are being worked out in the days in which we live. Well, that's one thing. We see God's sovereign purposes being fulfilled and worked out. Another thing we, we see here is God's concern for righteousness. We see that through this passage. God is at work over time to bring Judah's sin into the light. And that, that works in this passage, doesn't it, with with him being confronted here through, through Tamar and his sin coming into his, his consciousness until he, he then actually 
confesses his sin. He says, you are more righteous than I. That's a, a confession of sin. So God is at work in this passage to bring uh, Judah's sin to the light. And that we see that in the whole of the rest of the book of um, Genesis. That is the, the bigger story arc whereby this sin, where they, whereby they have essentially murdered Joseph um, and cast him into slavery, into the pit. Right at the end, of, remember the end of the book of Genesis, you have these chapters and chapters about the brothers there finally coming to acknowledge what they've done, finally coming to acknowledge the truth. So God's concern for, the right, for righteousness and this, this truth of what they've done, this wicked action, uh, finally coming out. So we see here, I think, God's concern for righteousness, but also God's concern for, for Judah, to actually bring Judah to repentance. So it's, it's, this is part of the story of Judah's repentance. He does seem in this passage to, well, he confesses his sin there. And as the story goes on, uh, you see there is a change in his character later on with, with Joseph as, as he, he, he offers to stand in for, for, for Benjamin. Um, so there's this change. So God is clearly at work in Judah. And how different that is, the, the way the Lord works. The way the Lord works in us is to, to bring our sin, to bring us to, to confession of sin, and to bring us to, to receive the forgiveness of sins and restoration. Uh, how different that is from the way the world works. You know, we live in very much in a sort of a cancel culture where you know, everything is permissible, but nothing is ever forgiven. And someone like um, Judah would just be cancelled and deleted from the covenant line, wouldn't they? Just, you could, someone who's that sinful short, cannot be part of God's people. Sorry, cross out Judah, let's start again. But that is not how our God works, is it? The Lord works in his righteousness to restore sinful people to himself. And so that was, remember Martin Luther's sort of great... Uh, rediscovery of the gospel, that the righteousness of God is not just that God is righteous and that exposes my sinfulness, but that God is righteous and in his righteousness he provides a way that my sin might be dealt with and covered, that I might be clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so part of what we see in these stories about Judah is that God's concern for righteousness, but also his concern to restore uh, sinful people back to himself to confess their sins. And I think this is just great comfort and encouragement for, for us as we uh, think of messy situations and perhaps friends or family members we've got who perhaps have been uh, Christ, sort of professing Christians in the past and, past and now who knows where they are. They've made lots of kind of strange decisions or different decisions about life and we see, we see God working in Judah. Doesn't that give us confidence that God might also be at work in uh, our own extended families or in situations we think of where we might think, this is so messy, God cannot be at work in this situation. But then look, God does. He works to restore sinful people to himself. We see that from the life of Judah. And that is a great encouragement for us with our sin, for we look back and, and the Lord brings things to mind and brings our own sin to mind, that we have a redeemer. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness. This is the good news of the gospel. It's for sinners. Okay, so if you've not confessed your sins, the gospel is for sinners. 
And as God convicts you of his sin, that his purpose is not just that so you feel really guilty, but so that you bring your, bring your sin to God and receive the forgiveness of the gospel and are welcomed back as sons, as daughters. That is the glory of the gospel. So we see here God's concern for righteousness. And then finally, sort of the flip side of this, God's concern for injustice, which I suppose is just another way of saying God's concern for righteousness. But um, looking, just considering Tamar, considering Tamar, I think one of the most interesting things about this passage is that it is, is that it's here at all in the scriptures. Like if, if you were writing uh, the history of Judah, uh, from whom came the Messiah, uh, would you put this bit in? If this was your family, you wouldn't put this in if this was your family history. You'd leave this bit out with Tamar, wouldn't you? You'd edit it out. And Judah wanted to edit Tamar out. He didn't want her in. He didn't want this bit in. But God brings it in. And I think this passage and, and others like it, think of uh, Abraham and Sarah, where Abraham, oh no, sorry, Abraham and Hagar, where he treats Hagar really badly and she's kind of cast out. These parts which show up the sins of the patriarch, I think one of the things which really persuades me of the divine authorship of the scriptures, because no, no human, no man would write these things. So often we're told, you know, in school or just in culture that, oh, the Bible is just a story of patriarchal oppression of women. And it, well, yes, it is, look. But it's actually a story which critiques the sins and exposes the sins of the patriarchs. It exposes their sins and holds them out for everyone to see. So our culture needs the scriptures. We, we're sort of shuffling it away and saying it's a tale of oppression. It's actually a tale which... Um, an account which exposes oppression, that we might repent of it, that we might uh, have it dealt with, that people might be held to account. And so we see in this God's just concern that this injustice would be made known, that Tamar not be just deleted and edited out, but that Tamar, this woman with little power, who would, would had, would, that she wouldn't be just got rid of, you know, used for some sexual gratification and then just cast to one side. God just brings her in back into the story, really. Um, so we see uh, the Lord's concern for, for Tamar here. Now, what are we to make of her? I mean, I, I don't think she's a, she's a particularly a, a model of virtue to, to follow. So, so he says, so um, Judah says, you're more righteous than I. I don't think that means... Her, she was truly a truly virtuous woman at every, every level, but, but she was powerless and used this shrewdness that she, she had and she could have to, um, to get this child. And then God, she was, God, God blessed her. But I think we see the Lord's concern for uh, women like Tamar, those who've been uh, used up, exploited, cast off, and yet we see the Lord blessing her and bringing her back to himself, and giving her a place within the covenant family of God, a future and an inheritance. And that is what the gospel does, isn't it? It comes and picks us, as it were, out of the gutter, and brings us back to, uh, back to our creator, back to God as our, our father. And so that is the, the testimony of the church through the ages, that it should be bringing in people from all sorts of complicated 
and messy backgrounds where there has been sin um, and, and the, the Lord graciously bringing people in. So that is our prayer as the gospel goes out in Gloucester, isn't it? That the Lord will be at work in messy situation after messy situation, bringing his redeeming grace to bear as he has worked in our own lives, as he has worked in us with his great grace. So there we are, Judah and Tamar. And let me uh, give thanks to God and let me pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K. For more, thank you.